Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. First Sunday of the new year, 2020. And 2020, if you remember, uh, actually means perfect vision if you're in the optical field. And as a staff at North Main, as our ministry staff and extended uh, uh, administrative staff are looking at this new year, it's not only a year of joy, but we want a year of clarity. A year of clarity. Who is North Main? Why do we exist? And are we living that out completely? Our vision is to see completely committed followers of Christ living out their faith on a daily basis. We want to help develop completely committed followers of Christ. A completely committed follower of Christ, and it's before you on all of your publications, and it may just be words on a page right now. I pray that it becomes more than that to you, because it's more than that to your staff. And that's this, is that a completely committed follower of Christ is someone who knows Christ intimately, who grows in him continually, and who goes for him daily. That is the great commission in a nutshell. And the great commission is this. And I remember an evangelist not too long ago, my staff probably gets frustrated hearing me say this over and over, but uh, one of our uh, Church of God evangelists actually mentioned that Jesus' last words should be our first concern. So, and they are this, Matthew 28, uh, 19 and 20 says, therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and remember, I'm with you to the end of the age. Those are Jesus' final words. And that no, grow, go concept is embedded within that construct. You see, now Jesus had spent three years developing his completely committed followers. One of them fell away betrayed Christ, and hung himself, Judas Iscariot. But the others were the ones that Jesus spent three years pouring himself into to help them to know him intimately, to grow in him continually, and to go for him and with him daily. We don't believe there's any greater mission that the church should be on than what Jesus himself was all about. And so as a church, as we start this year of joy, I want us to look at this concept and this idea of joy, not just being a fruit of the Holy Spirit, but also being an aspect of living life daily in this joyous pursuit of Christ, to know him intimately, joyfully growing in him by being a part of a community of faith that's challenging, holding me accountable, those kind of things, and going for him daily. It's all three together. They are not exclusive. They are symbiotic in relationship. If you remember the fruit of the Spirit, it goes like this in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit, Paul tells us, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
Those are the fruit of the Spirit. Last year, we looked at the fruit of love. That love is not an emotion, but it's an action. It's something we do. It's unconditional, sacrificial, and selfless. This year, we're looking at the fruit of joy. And how do you have joy when the rest of the world may be crashing in around you? When you turn on the news and joy does not seem to be in great supply on the TV, everything that you watch has some sort of drama and trauma to it, real life or fiction. So how do you find joy? How do you see joy? Where do you look for it? More importantly, how do you produce it? Because if it's a fruit, we are to be producing it in our lives. So here's the question this morning. We're looking at Genesis. What was it like before the fall, before sin entered the world? Will you have the fruit of the Spirit in great supply? Because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are there. The eminent Christ, now not the embodiment we know of Jesus, but the preeminent Christ is there at the beginning of creation. How do we know that? God the Father's there speaking his words and things are coming into existence. And then we go to John chapter one, in the beginning it was a word, the word was with God. The word was God, he was with God in the beginning. And it says, nothing came into being except through that word. And that word John is telling us in the gospel of John was Jesus made flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God's word was in the beginning with God the Father. And where was the spirit? It was hovering over the waters of the deep. You have the very Trinity there in the full Godhead personal experience. God is intimately involved with his creation, but he is separate from his creation. And in the beginning, Genesis chapter one and chapter two, we have this beautiful narrative of how everything came into existence. Why? We didn't get the why everything exists except for the fact that love creates. Love gives. And if God is love, he gave and created out of that love. But I challenge you to hear me that God created for the joy of creating. That the object of his love was a joyful process for him to speak things into existence. At the end of each day, he looked and saw that things were good. Now that's one of the fruit of the spirit, goodness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, right? But joy and good, I think they're all intertwined. At the end of each day as he created and spoken into existence and then he surveyed what he'd created on each day, he looks at it and says, that's good. And I've contended my whole life that God's good is best. There's nothing better than God's good, all right? It's not good, better, best. God's good is best, okay? So God looks over all creation. And there's joy in what he's standing back and looking at. It's like a, a craftsman or a woodworker or somebody who works on engines or anything like that, working with your hands and you're creating and crafting and you stand back and though you can see every minutia and detail, there's a part of you that feels like you've accomplished something. You've taken joy and pride in what you're doing. The craftsman who molds and shapes things, builds things, is able to stand back and feel a sense of accomplishment because of the joy of creating. 
And so God, take that to the nth, the nth degree, the, the perfect God of the perfect creation before the fall is able to look back and not see a flaw. And not to be puffed up with pride, but to, to feel good about what he's done. As you and I should feel good about what we do on a daily basis if we're living centered in God's will and purposes. But this is God's, this is God's everyday, everyday fruit, his joy. So what is joy? I had to look it up this week. Joy in the Webster's Dictionary is this, the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune by the prospect of possessing what one desires. That's one definition. Another definition is the expression or exhibition of such emotion. You see, these two are tied to emotion. Go on down. A state of happiness or felicity. But here's the one I think really hits a nail on the head for the fruit of the Spirit. And it's this. It's a source or a cause of delight. A source or a cause of delight. What is it that delights you? What is the source of your joy? There's a Greek word for this, as we look at it in Galatians chapter 5. The Greek word is chara, C-H-A-R-A, and it means cheerfulness or calm delight, gladness, or greatly exceeding joyfulness. And let me ask you this question this morning as we kick this off, and it won't be long before we'll be done with this message today, but has joy been elusive for you? Has the source of joy become a disappointment for you? Because it depends on what you're focused on. It depends on what your life is centered on as to whether or not joy is eternal in your life or temporal, temporary. Is joy a permanent factor of your life that no matter what's going on in your life, you have joy because you know the source of your joy isn't in your current circumstances, but in something beyond that. See, I contend that joy isn't an emotion per se, but rather a focus on the one who brings you hope and peace. And if you're looking for people to make you feel hopeful and joyful and peaceful, you might get hopeful and joyful and peaceful in people every so often, but guess what? Has, have you ever been disappointed by the people you love the most? You can raise your hand, this isn't not rhetorical. Has somebody you love the most ever disappointed you? Okay, most of us can say yes. Why? Because like us, they are broken and fallen creatures. Everyone on the face of the earth is a broken and fallen creature that has been born into a broken and fallen world that is corrupted by evil. And the only hope is salvation through Christ Jesus and redemption through the cross. And the way we receive that salvation and redemption is through confession and repentance and believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior of our life. And that is the source of true joy. That is the source of true joy. Did you know we're told in the New Testament 
that for joy, Christ endured the cross. Did you know that? Think about what he went through. It was for joy that he endured the cross. Why? Because he knew what the end result was going to be. He was focused on his father's will and purposes. He spent time with the father. He broke away from the crowds to be with the father because his joy centered on the father. Father God, who he spent time with, who he loved, and who he did not do a thing without before hearing from his father. And that was the center of his purpose, his will, his joy, his love. For God so loved the world that gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Jesus, the embodiment of that love, the embodiment of that sacrifice, the embodiment of that joy, continued to keep his focus on the source of his joy and not just on the cross because it was for the joy of what he had been called to that he faced the cross. As much as we were created to live in love, we were created to live in joy. And I'm going to be honest with you. I've pastored or been on staff in three different churches in three different states in the United States. And I'm going to say the vast minority of people live in joy. And that's, that's a sad testimony. At least in my experience, pastoring in Florida, in Ohio, and now Pennsylvania, growing up in Kentucky, I've not seen many people with this centered production of joy in their lives. I, I've seen a handful in my, in my 20 years of ministry that no matter what comes their way, no matter the trauma, the devastation, the distractions, they keep their focus on Christ. Not the distractions of the wind and the waves or the difficulties or the storms of life. They keep their eyes fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of their faith. And they're the ones that are able to sustain this constant joy in life because they know that these light and temporary trials are just that, temporary. And they can have a joy that goes beyond the, the, the immediate because they know it's not going to last forever, the thing that they're going through. But what did it look like in the very beginning when there was no evil, there was no pain, there was no grief? Well, let's take a look. Genesis chapter 1, verse 24 is where we're starting this morning. <clears throat> So God's creating everything, and we get to the sixth day. In verse 24, this is what the sixth day of creation looks like. Then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind. So here, let me just translate that. A dog produced a dog, not a cow or a cat, right? A cow produced another cow, through the sexual union of two cows, a male and a female, and they produced animals of the same kind. Do you catch what's going on here? Just in case you weren't sure of what was happening in the context of the uh, creation narrative. They produced offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And that was what happened. 
God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock and small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. And God said that it was good. Then God said, let us make human beings in our own image to be like ourselves. They will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and small animals that scurry along the ground. So this was one of the memory verses for my seventh grade class this year. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then what does God do? Does he say, okay, well, I'm done. Pack it up and head home. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and the animals that scurry along the ground. And then God said, look, I have given you every seed bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for food. What did God give the first humans for food? Fruit and vegetables. <laughs> Kids, always remember, fruits and vegetables are what you'll be eating in heaven. Just kidding. Um, <clears throat> and I have given you every tree, uh, I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that's what happened. What did the animals eat? They didn't eat each other. There was no food chain. Do you, do you notice? I think that's always so intriguing to me uh, because if you're not careful, you kind of glance over that. Um, not promoting veganism, I love meat, and you're going to have some today at the dinner after church. So, you know, but I think that is so interesting because think about it. Death was not on the scene. Death wasn't, wasn't a part of God's original creation. Do you hear me? None of the animals died and the humans didn't die. So they weren't going around hacking each other to death until we get to Genesis chapter four, but that's a story for another day. Then God looked over all that he had made, it says, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the what? Sixth day. Here's the key point this morning, is that humans were created in the image of God through an act of God's love, joy, and generosity. Let me say that again. Humans were created in the image of God through an act of God's love, joy, and generosity. But how does this play out? Where do we find evidence of joy in this first passage? Well, look at this. God creates humans in his own image. That's the first point. Let's think about that for a moment. If God creates us in his image, do you think he's like, oh, I hate them so much, I'm gonna create them in my image? No, he loves us. We know he creates out of love because he is love. But do you think he takes joy? Think about this for a moment. We get to Genesis chapter two, which is like the microscope version of Genesis chapter one. So Genesis chapter one is the big picture. And then we get to Genesis chapter two. It is the close up version. And it says in Genesis chapter two, specifically that God created humans, but how did he do it? Well, he did it different than the rest of creation. He spoke everything else into existence, but with humans, he didn't speak them into existence. Why not? Because I think it was for the joy of creating and the joy of what he was creating and the purpose and the, and the intimate 
relationship he desired with what he was creating on the sixth day, and that was humans. He spoke animals into existence. He created them, but with humans, he creates them by forming them from the dust of the ground. Well, specifically, man. He creates the first man by forming him from the dust into the dirt of the ground, the clay that made up that from which the plants grew in. And then he could have said, be alive, but he doesn't. Like Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, he could have said, Lazarus, come forth. Or he could have said, Adam, come alive, but he didn't. What does he do? In Genesis 2, he breathes into the nostrils of Adam the breath of life. I get this gentle picture in my mind that the very breath of God is able to bring to animation the lifeless body created from the soil. Image of God. What does that mean? Biblical scholar and author Walter Brueggemann writes this, human persons are honored, respected, and enjoyed by the one who calls them into being. And this gives human people or human persons their inalienable identity. What is our identity? Here's the deal, and I've said this multiple times before. We, every one of us, every person that has ever breathed life, who has ever been in the womb, was created in the image of God. But not everyone is a child of God. There are two different aspects of this. The one created in the image of God before the fall was very much a child of God. But after the fall, since we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, it is required of us to come to Jesus Christ in faith. It is required of us, as we talked about in December, to come to God in faith in order to become a child of God, to repent of your past, your sins, and to move in the direction of Christ. But every one of us bears the very image of God. But what does that look like? You see, not only does God create out of love, he creates out of the joy of what he is creating. As I mentioned before, you know, with the craftsman that crafts on the potter's wheel, they, they take and they mold and they shape just to the right perfect shape, the right depth and thickness. And what do they do? They stand back and they look at it. They check it out. They look at the detail of it. And if they need to, they'll, they'll reshape it again and remold it. <clears throat> and they'll stand back and look at the finished product and, and be excited about what they've made. The one who creates even takes equal care not only to craft what, what uh, he has in his mind, but he wants it to come into the very presence of what we can see. Now think about this. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? It doesn't mean that he has a body like you or I do. Do you know that? Well, he must have arms, legs. Well, we talk about that. The mighty hand of God. You see allusions to this. This anthropomorphic idea that God holds a physical body like we do. But it, the Bible tells us, no, God is spirit. He doesn't have a physical form. So now what does that mean to be created in the very image of God if he doesn't have a physical body? 
He has personhood, but he is spirit. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Brueggemann goes on to write, there is one way in which God is imaged in the world and only one, and that's through humans. Not through trees, not through rocks, not through animals, but through humans. Humans bear the very image of God. Nothing else in creation bears his image. Other things bear the imprint of his creation, uh, his acts of creation, but they don't bear the very image of God. This is the only creature, humans are the only creature and the only part of creation which disclose to us something about the reality of God. You wanna know about God, you have to know humans. And quite frankly, you have to know humans at their best. In the humanist, if you will, the secular humanist looks at humans as just a part of the animal kingdom. We are just another animal in the branch of life. But humans are not just another animal. We are actually the object of God's love and affection and joy. Something that he was willing eventually within time to come and die for on a cross. Who would be willing to do that if they didn't take joy in the one through whom, for whom they were dying or didn't love the one for whom they were dying? Scholar and author Victor Hamilton explains the image of God in man this way. Now listen up, because I think this is a great description of this. In, it's clear in verse 26, it is clear that verse 26 is not interested in defining what is the image of God in man. The verse simply states the fact, which is repeated in the following verse. Nevertheless, innumerable definitions have been suggested. Now have you heard these? It's the conscience or the soul or the original righteousness. It's reason or the capacity for fellowship with God through prayer, posture, etc. Have you heard that that's what the image of God is? It's not the physical body, it's the conscience. It's all of this other stuff. Most of these definitions are based on subjective inferences rather than objective exegesis. Any approach that focuses on one aspect of man be it physical, spiritual, or intellectual, to the neglect of the rest of man's constituent features seem to be doomed to failure. What he's saying here is you can't relegate God's image to one thing in humanity. Spiritually, emotionally, physically, God can physically manifest himself if he wants to. The pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke in the Old Testament with Moses. He can manifest himself as an angel he can manifest himself as whatever he wants to, but he is not bound to a physical structure. Humans bear the very image of God emotionally, intellectually, through our reasoning, through our spirituality. It's the whole thing. This is what the Jewish culture calls the soul. Do you know that? We have so corrupted the Jewish context of soul to mean something different than what it originally meant. Soul is not the spirit of the individual, the soul is the whole person. Mind, body, strength, emotion, spirituality, it's everything wrapped up in one. You, are, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. Do you, are you following me at all? Am I losing you this first Sunday of New Year? So if God creates us in his image, then he creates us with a purpose. And I've heard so many people tell me, Brandon, I don't even know what my purpose is. Well, do you believe you're created in the image of God? Because if you don't believe you're created in the image of God, then you don't know if you have a purpose and you're probably not even searching for one. 
But if you believe you were created in the image of God, that you came into existence and you are fearfully and wonderfully made, as the psalmist tells us, then you have to come to this conclusion. If God created me, then I must have a purpose. Now, what do I do with that? For the joy that was set before me through his creation of me, I should figure that out. Pastor, what is God's purpose for me? I can't tell you that. I can give you tools. I can point you in the right direction. But I can't tell you what your purpose is. You have to figure that out. How do I figure out my purpose? You have to know Christ intimately. He needs to be the closest individual in your life. Before your wife, before your children, before anybody. He has to be the most important. Because if you don't know him, you don't know why you were created. If you don't know him intimately, the way he knows you intimately and knits you together in your mother's womb, you can't know your purpose. And if you don't know him intimately, there's no way you can grow in him continually. And if you don't grow in him continually, you can go for him, but let's be honest, why are you going if you don't know why? It makes no sense. Second point here is this, he creates them equal and unique. Did you know that? God creates them equal and unique. We see the joy in God's creation of the first humans that he creates them equal. If we read in the second uh, chapter of Genesis, it says help meet. Some of it has been mistranslated into help mate as if uh, she's just there to help Adam out. She's kind of an afterthought. Adam was lonely, he needed somebody to help him out, so God made a woman. No, help meet, M-E-E-T. And it's actually, the language of the Old Testament of of the Hebrew actually means it's a co-equal in existence. Okay? God could have created a woman out of the dirt and the mud the way he did Adam, but he created Eve from the same substance. He took a part of Adam, flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone. She's equal. She's a part of him. He is a part of her. And when the two were together, guess what they make? One. See, you know what it means to be created in the image of God? We reflect the oneness of God and his unity. What does it say? God says, let us make me. Who is he talking to? Think about that for a minute. Let us create man in our own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the unity of his oneness as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so as he creates female from male, the two are together and they become one. We read about this in the perfectness of the garden narratives as well. Husband shall leave father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. But he created them equal and unique. Now, let me, let me just preface this because I know we live in a very PC culture where gender is supposed to be fluid now. 
where there are more genders on the radar. And I'm not, listen, I am not besmirching, mocking, or trying to make fun of. But from a biblical perspective, which has been my pursuit to know God intimately myself, and looking at the authority of God's word as being the foundation of all truth, then I have to contend with, is culture right or is God right? And you have to make that choice. I I may not like some of what I read in scripture, but understanding it in context, I have to concede that God's ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts and his ways are better than my ways. Even if I don't like what I'm reading, I have to contend that God is good and that God is love, and that as a good God who loves, then his ways are best. And so as I look at this narrative and this scripture before the fall and the perfectness of the garden, he created not one gender, but two. He didn't create multiple genders. He didn't create non-binary, cis, LGBT. He didn't create, he didn't create you in the wrong body. And though you may feel that way, though you may be wrestling with your own identity, your own identity should first and foremost be rooted in God through Jesus Christ, not in your sexuality. And so the real true, the truth of the matter is if you are truly rooted in Christ, your identity then is in Christ and what is replaced is his identity fulfilled through your identity as an image bearer of God. Then you become the child of God you were created to be because you've completely given your life to him. And when you do that, you know who you are and whose you are and what your purpose is. But you can't know that apart from him. I've met with people that have gone through the surgeries to become the other gender, and they expect me to be condemning and hateful as they've experienced through most of Christendom and the churches and our culture. And when they ask, and I've had one person ask me point blank, what do you think about this? Do you think I'm a bad person? No, I don't. I may not agree with you, but I love you just as much God loves you because God first loved me. But here's what I know about God is that he loves you enough to help you become the person he created you to be, not what you think you should be. Though every desire and everything in you may be striving to be something that you feel so corrupt inside about not being, there is a purpose for your life. And that purpose apart from Christ will never be found. But I know that God loves you and that he created you and that you were fearfully and wonderfully made. And I know that God would do anything to get you to know him intimately. And until you do that, you can't find out your reason and purpose in life and you'll be constantly fighting against the wind. It's hard enough for those of us who have submitted our lives to Christ to continue on the path that he calls us to. Because Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter seven, the road is narrow, the gate is narrow, and it's hard. It's not easy to stay focused and to continue that narrow path. But the purpose you were created for, though it be hard, is a joyful walk with Christ. The road to destruction is wide, and many take it. Why? because it's easier to give in to the baser instincts of our fallen nature than it is to go against the, gr- the grain of the culture and do the right thing. Call it peer pressure, 
Call it laziness, call it whatever you want to. The only way we find out purpose and truth and equality, true unadulterated equality is by living by God's standards rather than our own, so the cultures. You see, the final thing, and I'll close with this, is God creates them to fill and govern the world he created. Here's another hot topic, PC culture has taken over. Um, I don't know where you stand on the global warming issue. I'm sure we have multiple different opinions here. You may think it's a farce, you may think it's real. I'm not gonna make a side on this stage. But here's what I will say to you. In the very beginning of time, when God created everything, and then he placed humans to have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the animals on the ground. Do you know what that really means? Was there, again, was there a food chain? I referenced that earlier. No, the humans ate the grains and the nuts and the berries and the fruit, and the animals ate the grasses and the grains of the field. Nothing died. So what did it mean for humans to govern, to rule over, to have dominion over God's creation? Well, this is what it means. God said, I love you. I have joy in you. And I have joy in all of the things that I've created because it's good. And here's what I do. Because I love you, I trust you. And I want you now to have dominion over everything I've created as an extension of my very image. You are to govern everything that I've created. And I will live in perfect relationship with you. I'll walk with you in the garden in the quiet of the day. I'll be in sweet fellowship with you. You will know me. I will know you. You two will know each other. Everything will be perfect. Just don't eat of this one tree or you'll die. Okay, good. So God creates them to fill and govern the earth. And he creates them to fill, multiply. We love the multiply and being fruitful, but we don't always do it in God's way. We are fruitful and multiply with multiple people and find ourselves in situations that say, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? Do you ever feel the weight? Have you ever been in a situation like that where you've been fruitful and multiplied in a way that you probably shouldn't have? And you're nervous and you're worried and you're sick to death and you're like, okay, well, let's, maybe we could have an abortion or I could give the baby up for adoption or I don't know, what am I gonna do? I'm too young or I'm too old or I'm fill in the blank. See, God created us to be fruitful and multiply in the context of the joining of the husband and the wife and the two becoming one flesh. Not the husband and a wife and another wife and another wife, polygamy. Not a husband and a wife and then him going sleeping around with other women in the community or vice versa. <laughs> Have you noticed on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, or if you still have cable TV, have you noticed that the shows that seem to glorify that lifestyle still can't evade the reality of the problems that it creates? Have you noticed that? Because the reality is to live fruitful and multiply 
outside of the context of God's perfect standard causes problems. That's why sexual immorality is such a a stark contrast to the reality of what God's purposes were for it in the very beginning. It was to be a joyful thing in the context of marriage between a woman and a man for a lifetime. The true fulfillment together. And to govern, what about governing the whole creation? Well, they too, both of them together were to govern the whole creation. Not as president and vice president, but as co-equals governing the creation in perfect relationship with one another. And here's what that looks like. It looks like not abusing the creation they were entrusted. It looks like them going around and caring for and being good stewards of everything that God created. What is a good steward? We usually only hear that in regards to money, tithing, and offerings. That's not what it's all about. It's truly about God has entrusted us with an amount of gifts, abilities. He's entrusted us even still in this falling world with governance of his creation, though it be broken. And we are to handle it with care, to love and to nurture what has been entrusted to us, not to abuse it. Because we love the God who created it and said that it was good. Does that make sense? I'm not saying you shouldn't go hunting. I'm not saying you shouldn't do all of those things. I think those are warranted and allowed. What I am saying is we shouldn't abuse what God created. We should take this stance of, God, I know you created this, and I'm going to care for it. I'm going to watch over it. I'm going to Use it for your glory rather than for my own benefit, even though I do get benefit when I use it for your glory. Does this make sense? In his book, Surprised by Joy, the late C.S. Lewis, an author of the Chronicles of Narnia series, he was an atheist who, was turned, who turned Christian apologist after a while. He talks about how he came to faith in God in his book, Surprised by Joy. He explains that throughout most of his life up till he came to Christ, that joy was this elusive thing, almost like a morning breeze. I'd feel it, I'd catch it, and then it'd be gone. But as he grew to understand, joy wasn't as elusive as he believed. In his conversation to Christ, Lewis writes, listen to what he writes. I had hoped that the heart of reality might be of such a kind that we can best symbolize joy as a place. Instead, I found it to be a person, capital P. For all I knew, the total rejection of what I called joy or God might be one of the demands, might be the first demand he would make upon me. You need to be joyful, is what he was expecting God to be like. There was no strain of music from within, no smell of eternal orchids at the threshold. When I was dragged through the doorway, no kind of desire was present at all, is what he says when he first experienced joy. See, for for him, joy was complete contentment. Do you understand what I'm saying? a complete contentment in knowing God. That's what he's getting at. And he was surprised by the fact that it wasn't a place, it wasn't something that he should be pursuing, it is a person that he should be focused in leaning into. 
He was surprised by that very fact. It's not fleeting. It's actually there for the taking. Throughout the course of his life in Christ, Lewis came to understand that joy and love are commingled together into a oneness that cannot be separated. The God of love is also the God of joy. And for Lewis, though demands were absent, joy and love were an abundant supply for they came from and as the source of all good things. As our worship team comes forward to close this out this morning, let me conclude with this. As image bearers of God, our joy in life cannot be found apart from God. True joy only comes from being connected with and reflecting the image of our holy creator. This new year, 2020, will you consider making each and every day purposeful, purposefully lived, in the joy of the Lord? Will you, in spite of your circumstances, remember that you're created with a purpose and that purpose is to reflect the glory of God in the life you live on a daily basis? Will you make a commitment like the Apostle Paul to rejoice in the Lord always? I'll say it again, rejoice. Because the truth is, humans are created in the image of God through an act of God's love, joy, and generosity, how much more should we be reflecting that amazing image in the way we live and to whom we live? Let's pray. Father, thank you that in the perfectness of creation, we were created not only out of an act of love, but out of an act of joy. That as we were fearfully and wonderfully created, that God, we, we, can, we can bask in the reality of how purposeful you created us. Even those of us that are questioning our purpose in life right now, those of us that are struggling with circumstances, God, remind us of who we are and whose we are and what we were created for. Help us to love the way you love and help us to experience the joy that you experienced when you first created us. Help us keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.